Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. This Easter morning, I would like to begin with a little bit of an understatement. The resurrection was unexpected. It was, we might say, a bit of a surprise, a shock. In our gospel reading, Mary Magdalene, going out early to the tomb on the third day, finds it empty and proceeds to have a whole conversation with the risen Jesus before realizing who he is, because no one expects a resurrection. That's not how things work. I start here because I think this is really easy for us to forget. After two millennia of Easter following hot on the heels of Good Friday and the story being told over and over, the resurrection, whatever you believe or think about it, seems like a foregone conclusion to the story. And two millennia of theologians have worked on this story, making the resurrection into just another logical step in a chain of salvation events. If you open up any systematic theology, you'll find a clear explanation for exactly why Jesus had to die and exactly why Jesus had to be resurrected. And it's just all so logical. And, well, of course we have a resurrection, obviously. I find that a bit ironic, because if you read the resurrection narratives in the Gospels, it's just a really whole lot of chaos and confusion. Uh, No one knows what's going on, no one knows why it's going on, and it's breaking their understanding of everything apart. But religion tends to become a place of certainties. How does salvation work? Well, it's A plus B equals C perform these actions, believe these doctrines, attend these services, and God will love you, and you'll be okay. Or on the flip side, fail to believe, fail to act, fail to attend, and things aren't going to go so well for you. It's so dependable. It's so certain. Religion seems to give us so much control. Or does it? See, the resurrection, I think, suggests that there's something else going on here, uh, something that the clarity of dogma and doctrine can't capture. Just like that confusing, upending morning long ago, resurrection points toward the breaking apart of our certainty and the unexpected intrusion of divine love. This morning, I'm going to enlist the help of some mystics and some poets to help us look again, because contemplatives and poets just seem to get what resurrection is all about. Let's take the opening of this poem by Hafiz. Uh, This poem's called Tired of Speaking Sweetly. Love wants to reach out and manhandle us, break all our teacup talk of God. If you had the courage and could give the beloved his choice, some nights he would just drag you around the room, ripping from your grip all the toys in the world that bring you no joy. 
Love sometimes gets tired of speaking sweetly and wants to rip to shreds all your erroneous notions of truth that make you fight within yourself, dear one, and with others, causing the world to weep on too many fine days. I love those opening lines that love wants to break all of our teacup, polite, easy talk of God. Love wants to turn everything upside down for us. And if we're open to it, this is what resurrection does. Those first disciples on Easter morning found their world no longer working in any predictable formulas. God had shattered their teacup theology, and so I want to suggest the divine still does for us. You see, we have the really strong urge to domesticate the divine into something we can get our heads around. And not just the divine. We humans would love if everything in our life fit into neat, comprehensible boxes. God, yes, but also other people, events, and maybe most of all, ourselves. Ourselves. Of everything we have to live with and wrestle with in our world, ourself is the one we really can't shake. You know the saying, wherever you go, there you are. Through our lifetime, we build up ways of naming ourselves, ways of understanding ourselves. We build up this whole identity that's made up of our experiences, our abilities, our personality, but maybe most of all, it's made up of our limitations, our failures, our missed opportunities. We take on what people around us expect from us and what we expect from ourselves what we think we have to do in order to be safe, to be loved, to be in control. And that starts so early in our lives, before we can reflect on it or be, really be responsible for what's happening. But over time, we build up this fixed picture of ourself, and we carry it around like armor. The Christian mystics have a term for this creation. They call it the false self. The false self. Thomas Keating, a Trappist monk known for his teaching on the contemplative life, describes the false self as the self-image designed to cope with the emotional trauma of early childhood. It seeks happiness in satisfying the instinctual needs of survival and security, affection and esteem, and control power. And it bases its self-worth on cultural or group identification. See, the false self is who I take myself to be, a performance that I have to keep up to secure my needs for security, esteem, and control. The false self is like a script that I have to play to protect myself. I'm loved because I look or I act a certain way, so I better keep that up. If I'm always in control, I can't get hurt. As long as I'm in motion, the pain can't catch up to me. People always eventually leave me, so I'm going to buffer myself to make sure that it hurts less when it happens. I'm okay because I get along with everyone and I never rock the boat. Right? These are all scripts we might be playing out. The false self is the way we think we must be in order to cope with the world. Everything's a formula. If I do X, Y will happen. If I'm good enough, smart enough, beautiful enough, kind enough, I will get what I need. Or sometimes the false self is structured the other way around. I'm never going to be good enough. I'll never be smart enough, beautiful enough, kind enough. So I'm going to brace for the loss, and I'm going to numb the pain in whatever ways I can find. And if performing that false self's role is exhausting, if I don't like the narrative that my false self gives me, well, it's better than uncertainty. 
At least I know what to expect. At least I can prepare. The false self is our response to loss, pain, and most of all, our experiences of lack of love. Another poem by Hafiz, I think he, he really captures this. I know the way you can get when you have not had a drink of love. Your face hardens. Your sweet muscles cramp. Children become concerned about a strange look that appears in your eyes, which even begins to worry your own mirror and nose. Squirrels and birds sense your sadness and call an important conference in a tall tree. They decide which secret code to chant to help your mind and soul. Oh, I know the way you can get if you haven't been drinking, love. You might rip apart every sentence your friends and teachers say, looking for hidden clauses. You might weigh every word on a scale like a dead fish. You might pull out a ruler to measure from every angle in your darkness the beautiful dimensions of a heart you once trusted. I know the way you can get if you have not had a drink from love's hands. Of course, by calling this structure the false self, we're implying that it's not really who we are. Another Trappist monk, Thomas Merton, once wrote, uh, I love this, every one of us is shadowed by an illusory person, a false self. This is the person I want to be, but who cannot exist because God doesn't know anything about this one. And to be unknown of God is altogether too much privacy. If the false self isn't who we are, then who are we? We identify so closely with what we do and the ways we cope with the world. What else could we be? This question points us to a mystery. Let me draw a connection here between the false self and the way religion works most of the time for us. You see, these play right into each other's hands. The false self is a structure that, that craves certainty, a role to perform, security, esteem, and control. And when religion becomes a formula, the false self could not be happier. Oh, okay, do this, believe that, and I'm in? Great, perfect. So instead of upending the false self, religion tends to shore it up and just make it stronger. But right here is where resurrection breaks in, something unexpected, something mysterious, something that breaks our formulas. In our reading this morning from Colossians, Paul writes these provocative words. Your life is hidden. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Your life is hidden. What if we pull on the thread of resurrection here? What if we all collectively just don't know what's going on here? Just don't know. What if our very lives are actually a mystery, even to ourselves? What if the formulas that we all have to protect ourselves actually aren't needed? What if, like Merton says, God doesn't know your false self and would really love to introduce you to your real self? And what if, in order to do that, your false self has to stop working, has to break down, fall apart? I want to read again the poem I read at the beginning, tired of speaking sweetly, but with its ending now. Love wants to reach out and manhandle us, break all our teacup talk of God. 
If you had the courage and could give the beloved his choice, some nights he would just drag you around the room, ripping from your grip all the toys in the world that bring you no joy. Love sometimes gets tired of speaking sweetly and wants to rip to shreds all your erroneous notions of truth that make you fight within yourself, dear one, and with others, causing the world to weep on too many fine days. The beloved sometimes wants to do us a great favor, hold us upside down and shake all the nonsense out. But when we hear he's in such a playful mood, most everyone I know quickly packs their bags and hightails it out of town. If religion is usually about certainty, formulas, do X and Y will happen, if the false self is about getting certainty in our world, if we do X, Y will happen, then the resurrection is like God doing us the great favor of holding us upside down and shaking all the nonsense out. I mean, it seems like this is what is happening in the Easter narrative. The disciples think they know how God works. They think they know how life works. They think they know how everything goes. And they especially know that when Rome publicly executes your leader, you are on the wrong track. That wouldn't be how God would work. And then out of nowhere, resurrection turns their whole world upside down. What does this mean? What is going on here? This isn't how the, sport, the story is supposed to go. And so it is with us as the divine breaks into our lives. Your life is hidden with God, says Paul. You don't know who you really are. And still today, Christ is breaking in and shaking us out of our false selves. Maybe in my individual life, my hopes and my dreams fall to pieces. And in the midst of that grief, over time, I start to let go and open up to new directions I had never considered before. Maybe in my social relationships, maybe I just can't play the role that's been assigned to me anymore. Maybe in my family system, I just can't do it anymore. I'm exhausted of it, and I stop playing the role, and it throws a wrench in every Thanksgiving and Christmas. But eventually, it opens space for all of us to breathe and learn new ways of being together. Or maybe in my religious world, Despite Christianity having a long tradition of believing or teaching one way, we're starting to get a sense that this way isn't good and God is pulling us all in a new direction, even though the first signs of that are breakdown, conflict, leaving, doubt. Like the ending of the poem we read, this kind of upside-down breaking in of Christ isn't something that fits nicely into the project we've made of our lives. When Christ breaks in like a resurrection to waken us from the dead certainty of our false selves and introduce us to our truest selves, that can feel like the breakdown of the very thing that we're relying on to protect us. But the purpose of this breakdown is so that God can begin to reveal to you your truest self, your hidden life, the you that you can't accept yet, the you that is loved, that is unfolding, the you with more of you to come than you can even imagine. In response to pain and loss and lack of love, we all build up identities to protect ourselves, but God longs to remove this armor so we can begin to hear, see what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. 
like resurrection breaking in and turning everything upside down, the divine will stop us in the tracks of our little programs for happiness and tell us, you don't yet know who you are. You don't have to be perfect to get affection. You don't have to protect yourself to be safe. You don't have to give and give to earn love. You don't have to buffer yourself from pain. You don't have to keep playing out this script endlessly, even though it exhausts you. You can stop. The real you doesn't need all of that. The real you is loved. The real you is safe. The real you is empowered. I want to quote at length from Thomas Keating here. I think he says this in a really lovely way. All you have to do is stop being who you think you are, and you couldn't be more delightful. Because there's nothing more beautiful than the uniqueness God has created. You don't have to create the beauty. You've got the beauty. You don't have to create the freedom. You've got it. You don't have to create the image of God in you. You have it. You don't have to win over God's love. You have more love than you could know what to do with. You don't have to become more beautiful because nothing could be more beautiful than your own particular uniqueness. I know the way you can get when you have not had a drink of love. Your face hardens. Your sweet muscles cramp. Children become concerned about a strange look that appears in your eyes, which even begins to worry your own mirror and nose. Squirrels and birds sense your sadness and call an important conference in a tall tree. They decide which secret code to chant to help your mind and soul. Oh, I know the way you can get if you have not been drinking love. You might rip apart every sentence your friends and teachers say, looking for hidden clauses. You might weigh every word on a scale like a dead fish. You might pull out a ruler to measure from every angle in your darkness the beautiful dimensions of a heart you once trusted. I know the way you can get if you have not had a drink from love's hands. That is why all the great ones speak of the vital need to keep remembering God. So you will come to know and see him as being so playful and wanting, just wanting to help. The thing for us to do here is simply remain open and curious. That's all. Just remain open and curious. When the project of your life breaks down, when things stop making sense, when we just can't do it anymore, what if that's not failure but invitation. What if, like resurrection, again, God is breaking in with a love that is so unexpected, we don't even know how to make sense of it. If that's what's happening, then our only job is, when the unexpected breaks in, to allow it. To say, yes. To say, right here, I am being introduced to my real self. I know the way you can get if you have not had a drink from love's hands. That is why all the great ones speak of the vital need to keep remembering God. So you will come to know and see him as being so playful and wanting, just wanting to help. Today, we gather to celebrate the resurrection which means today we gather to celebrate a playful God who will not play by the rules. 
We gather to celebrate divine love that sees past our false selves, past our protective strategies to save ourselves from pain, isolation, despair. We gather to celebrate a Christ whose love may at times confuse us and throw our lives into chaos, but only, only so that we may be invited to discover the mystery of our lives that have been hidden from us. We're loved. We're safe. We're empowered. Today, maybe you are feeling very stuck. Maybe you're going around and around the script, trying your hardest to be good, to be loved, to be safe, and the dead certainty of the logic is wearing you down. Or maybe today you're feeling the pull of an invitation to something new, and it's terrifying. It's vulnerable. It's exciting. It's not how you expected your life to go. Or maybe you're in the middle of a bold leap into something new and you're not sure where it's going to take you and sometimes you wish you could go back to where everything made sense but also you think this unknown terrain is exactly where you need to be. Or maybe you're sitting with the wonder of seeing an unexpected part of yourself come alive and feeling the breaking in of love and goodness where you didn't know it could be. Wherever you are today, the invitation of resurrection is this. This whole thing, it's not on your shoulders. It's not up to you. You don't need to make this happen. And anyway, divine love is just going to turn it all over anyway. Not out of cruelty, but because God is so looking forward to you becoming your true self. Your beloved self. Your secure self. Your empowered self. So our invitation this Easter is, Pearl Church, may we remain open to Christ who shows up unanticipated, unannounced, and reveals our life, which is hidden, a mystery. Will you pray with me? God of resurrection, you upend our lives And in so doing, you invite us to meet our truest selves, to know we are loved, to know we are secure, to know we belong. May we today say yes. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.